The root question or need of the UFO religion had not massively changed, but those at the centre of the discourse had. There is, for example, little in common between the average channeler and the average witness to a close encounter of the third kind. Although they were part of the same kind of narrative, the roles of those involved began to noticeably shift. For instance, the voice of authority in contactee stories rests with the channeling entity and also the perpetuator of the narrative. A self-identification is all that is needed and often all that can be provided as the beings involved have no corporeal body or presence. The contactee movement in a nutshell gave anyone the ability to contact with God or a reincarnated form of whatever God they wished to contact and access directly the information that was obscured from them by organised religion. In contrast, the average abductee story puts the abductee themselves in a position where they cannot even trust their own conscious recall, but can only put stock in the information withdrawn through hypnosis by a trusted other. Yet again, the truth of their experience and the knowledge to be drawn from it is obscured, but the form of this obstruction is abstracted from a closed door, a locked filing cabinet, to our own brains and the constructs within it. Yet with the Cold War threatening to turn hot, the military was found to be quashing stories of UFOs whilst carrying on a policy of inquiet investigation. The Roswell incident is in reference to a supposed crash of a weather balloon in 1947 at a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. A massively visible conspiracy theory gained the most steam in the 1970s, when a retired lieutenant colonel alleged that the official weather balloon story had been a cover-up for the fact that the UFO had crashed on the site and alien bodies had been recovered from the wreckage and concealed by the US government. In 1947, the day after the crash, the Roswell Army Airfield had briefly released a statement that they had recovered a flying disc, but the statement was quickly retracted. It was never intended to be released, and any such further statements on the matter, attempting to clarify, only serve to fuel the conspiracy. In a way, the continual lack of evidence led even more credence to the tale, and soon alien stories began to change from a focus on contact and imparted knowledge to abduction. By the mid-60s, the already existing tension between ufology and its earnest pursuit of the truth about our standing in the universe and those contactees who sought, whether selfishly or unselfishly, to self-prophesize as leaders of a coming new age, was reaching a breaking point. In contrast, the repeated contactee warning that nuclear war was inevitable unless we joined with our more intelligent space brothers 
Encounters were documented that seemed to defy an optimistic reading, although some still tried. The blueprint for these encounters, or as by the book, as the 50s peaceful visitations had come to be. UFO researchers such as folklorist Thomas E. Bullard argues that there is a broad and fairly consistent sequence and description of events that make up the typical abduction or close encounter of the fourth kind, the kind of encounter that came to surpass contactees as the typical alien encounter in the public eye. One, the victim is incapacitated in some way and taken aboard an alien ship, often hovering invisibly in the atmosphere. Two, the victim is subject to invasive procedures, often involving testing or simulated behavioural study, often sexual in nature, in the supposed guise of scientific discovery. Three, the aliens communicate their purpose with the victim, often telepathically, but occasionally verbally. Sometimes a tour of the ship is conducted but the knowledge drawn from this is inconclusive. 4. Loss of time and return. 5. The victim has no conscious knowledge of what has passed, but has a sense that something mystical, sometimes profound, has happened to them. And 6. They seek out counsel and begin the process of recalling their lost experience through hypnosis or occasionally recovering details sporadically through vivid dreams or visions. The Travis Walton UFO incident is one of the most publicised abduction stories later adapted into the film Fire in the Sky which is excellent, and if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It is horrifying, and there are aspects within the narrative that keep me up at night, and that is the exact kind of fear that these kinds of accounts inspire in their victims and those who hear them. It is hard to see from these accounts anything comforting. They don't seem to hold an easy path for humanity to navigate through the dangers of the current situation. If anything, they seem to underlie just how powerless the individual is to control their destiny in this era. Walton was working in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona, when he was abducted. He was missing for just over five days in 1975 and despite a massive manhunt being put into action with numerous search dogs, he wasn't recovered until reappearing in a nearby town. He was initially riding with six of his colleagues when they encountered a saucer-shaped object hovering around 100 feet above the ground, emitting a high-pitched buzz. Like those that came before him, bravely, he left the vehicle and approached the craft and a beam of light is said to have knocked him unconscious. His colleagues fled the scene in fear and Walton awoke in a hospital-like room observed by humanoid figures that placed a pseudo-medical mask over his face. He once again lost consciousness 
For the six days until he was found at the side of the road, his colleagues were under suspicion for his murder. They all gave separate accounts of the tale. They all took polygraph tests, and the results implied, at the very least, they appeared to be earnest in what they thought they saw. One of the biggest things counting against Walton was the airing of a TV movie about Barney and Betty Hill's experiences just two weeks earlier, and the idea that anyone viewing it would recognise in the atmosphere of the time a chance that with an interesting and a convincing modern abduction story, anyone could land themselves an instant celebrity. Whether truthful or not, there's a reason when we think of UFOs, accounts of experimentation and probing come to mind before the images of friendly Nordic men with solid life advice and promises for a future salvation. These accounts lean heavily on a universal fear of the violation of the body, or more broadly, violation of the self or individual identity. Whereas contact details talked broadly, danger to the world and humanity in general, abductees were often abducted independently or with a loved one from their homes. People with little or no background knowledge of the mystical or the extraterrestrial, private people who rarely sought to spread their stories for profit, often their lives were plagued by these tales when they reached the press. It was a shame for them that they could never really recover from. A controversial theory of dual reference is one such theory that sought to ally these encounters with the already established body of mythology and tie them into an ideology still trying to offer faith in individual agency in an era of widespread bodily degradation and fear. Many abduction stories were expounded upon through recall, enabled by hypnosis. It was noted by some that over time, some abductees slowly started to realise as their encounters and their experiences were fleshed out by subsequent sessions, that their aggressors were not in fact as alien as they thought. Certain individuals had over time tended to view themselves as alien in origin and therefore their aggressors as in fact their colleagues once again making contact. Many in the field had issues with this idea and saw it as leaning on a kind of Stockholm syndrome where victims can over time develop an identification with their imprisoner or aggressor. Although not massively popular and so having little direct influence over contemporary alien discourse, the need it reflected to refactor unknowable incidents that defy understanding into something knowable, potentially offering friendship, kinship or future peace, shared a space with the encounters of the past. Perhaps it was for this reason that it didn't gain much traction. Yet the idea itself was squarely in the same wheelhouse as the contactee movement and refactoring traumatic experiences as vital learning experiences in a response to unavoidable trauma. Contactees often bore the burden 
of the weight of the voices they channel, having little agency over when or where of their contact, but having the ability to control how they dealt with it. This idea of a return to individual agency, the idea that any person could contact or be contacted by any alien, started to shape a new age for man, as quoted in Extraordinary Encounters. To Saucerians, there are no unidentified flying objects. Flying saucers, nature, origin and purpose are known. They are here to educate humans to their larger cosmic destiny. To ufologists, UFOs are unknowns, probably of extraordinary origin, but fundamentally a phenomenon that will eventually yield its secrets to science by conventional, investigative and analytical procedures. In a very simplistic view, Saucerians seem to make up the bulk of the founders of the UFO religions for the same reasons that their purpose allies with that of their aliens, the betterment of mankind. And furthermore, ufology would not lend itself easily to a religion as faith and analytical procedure have the effect of rendering each other meaningless. There is a reason then that ufology-inspired religions tend to fall further from traditional faiths and closer to cults. And I say inspired here, as I don't want to imply any of the religions that take up their mantle do so by taking along with them their intentions. It is easy to co-opt some of the ideas of ufology and corrupt them to serve your own purpose. Pitting the fragile human body and self against impersonal body of science, against the idea of a universe either hostile to our existence or at best ambivalent, tapped into a different but still potent aspect of the human psyche, fear. Similarly, many more modern UFO experiences contain aspects of what we would now call body horror. The aliens almost always seek to probe bodies in a pseudo-sexual, frightening and degrading manner. This in these narratives are often made a point of as being sexless, yet their experiments are often repressed by those involved, only to be recalled under hypnosis and dredged up from their subconscious brain. It is clear that these ideas about how the body reacts to these experiences or how we refactor them into the narratives that we disseminate, many of the theories around them are coming from an impersonal or at least attempting at an impersonal scientific model, one that doesn't seek to sugarcoat the facts, but more to situate us as scientifically and rigorously at the side of truth amongst the seemingly unknowable, as if more knowledge will be of comfort. Ufologist Alvin H. Lawson suggested his own hypothesis that abductees were suffering imaginary experiences in which they relived the traumas associated with their births. 
Although not many people believed his theory, it highlights the fact that ufology, in all its scientific rigour, could never really fully escape its roots in psychiatry. Abductee stories provided an untapped well of information for those who wished to view the phenomena through the lens of the human brain and its relation to the world around it. The stability of the recounted episodes is of note, as it seems to cast doubt on those sceptics who imply or overstate the influence of the interviewer. For example, doorway amnesia refers to the numerous examples of abductees under hypnosis failing to remember either the point of entry or the point of departure from the UFO. Whatever ways we wish to analyse this, its specificity and universality imply a vein of human truth uniting a body of disparate narratives. That we would see a shift in focus from the contactee narratives of mental channeling to the physical site of the body as the main site of trauma shouldn't be ignored as its effects can be felt in the religions that surrounded it. I'd like to make a note here that although America is not and was not the only participant in the story of the birth of the UFO and its religions, it's singularly suited to the creation of UFO myths, their circulation, and the, the force of the grip they held over their populations. The earliest UFO stories circulated in America amongst an adult population who were either children of the Great Depression or having worked through it. In the comparatively lush years following a long bout of poverty and severe hunger for many, the idea of the American dream, the land of opportunity for the self-made man, clearly influenced the new religions of the time and their self-prophesized leaders. Those with the gift could talk themselves up to a position of influence, whether American-born or not. Those with the right amount of charisma and conviction in their words could talk themselves up to a position of pseudo-God. The image of the 50s man, suited, suave, and having it all, is still positioned as broadly aspirational at this time. Indeed, earlier UFO narratives praise those with respectable jobs and spotless reputations, and their accounts are more likely to believe than those more closely allied with the countercultural image, or indeed those more closely allied with what we would count as a UFO contactee now rural neighbourhoods, the fringes of society. This image of the 50s man never ceased to be ideologically loaded and formed the basis around which the imagery of the church of the subgenius was founded. The suited businessman was subverted as the image of the contradictory, nonsensical and often antagonistic parody religion recontextualizing the aspirational imagery of family and home 
as the images themselves failed to have the comfort they once did, as the body, the family and the home repeatedly was subject to destruction. The supposed death of the American dream was played out in UFO narratives. The body, the home, society, the town, facing invasion and penetration. As the strength of the American dream was questioned, its truths decried, leaving behind a vacuum of faith in which anxiety made itself home, the contactee was stripped of agency, resuited as a victim rather than a participant in their own fate. There was no room in the world for a public Adamski figure or a Dr. King. The Unarians, or Unarius Academy of Sciences, was one such UFO religion which failed in many ways to adapt to the changing times. They attempted to shift their approach to reach a wider audience, but in doing so caused a rift in their followers, half seeking a popular audience and landing themselves the moniker of Flying Saucer Group and half clinging to beliefs which no longer fit with the modern age. They tried and arguably failed to have it both ways. Although they are still functioning today and their numbers and their members are widespread, their influence is narrow and even amongst UFO religions, they are less well known. Unarius is an acronym for Universal Articulate Interdimensional Understanding of Science. Its basic tenets promise students ways to influence the vibratory frequencies of their own outgoing and incoming frequencies, to repel negative energy by shifting one's frequency, to rob the offending energy of an outlet. So it is in effect turned back on itself like a boomerang. In 2020, the Academy turned its focus to the potential of Tesla coils, a natural extension of this idea of positive manipulated frequency, and posited that they could be used to flood areas with high frequencies and so repel natural disasters such as tornadoes. A non-profit founded in LA, California in 1954 by Ernest and Ruth Norman the organization purports to advance a new interdimensional science of life based upon fourth dimensional physics principles. It is recorded that in 2003 to 2004, Unarius centers existed in Canada, New Zealand, Nigeria, the UK, and various locations around the United States. But to this day, their membership figures are unknown. Under Ernest's control, predominantly the Academy focused on channeling and distributing dissertations from advanced intelligent beings existing on a higher plane than us. But under Ruth's control, they shifted focus to self-promotion and the society became more well-known in the public eye, particularly some of its more flamboyant members. They appeared on Letterman and various public access TV channels, as well as various local public access channels, screening their films weekly. The organization succeeded for a time 
in shifting its focus from its teachings to a cult of personality around its leader, Ruth. Whether it helped them succeed in their scientific aims is debatable, but it certainly helped to keep them from falling into obscurity, along with similar such 50s-founded religions. Ruth Norman, also known as Uriel, an archangel from the fourth dimension, like Adams, had a very modest background. Receiving little in the way of formal education, she worked from a very young age at various odd jobs, such as fruit packing and manual labour, before falling almost by accident in the 40s into the world of psychics and past life regression. This path led her to be introduced to Ernest Norman in the 50s, another self-described psychic. The two were married, and together they attempted communication with extraterrestrials and fleshed out the basis for what was to be their religion. After Ernest's death in 1971, Ruth began to double down on her prophecies, read their contacts in the Benevolent Space Brothers. In 1974, she predicted them to land on Earth that year. Her conviction, or perhaps her self-delusion so high as to lead her to purchase land to serve as landing site for the craft. Her space brothers failed to appear. In response, Ruth stated past life trauma had caused her to be inaccurate in her prediction and judgment. Her predicted landing dates leapfrogged into the future and were to eventually outlive her. Her not living to see if, if her 2001 prediction came to pass. She died in the early 90s, despite the efforts of her devotees to prolong her life. She provided, up until that time, the deeply flawed and human centre the religion needed to navigate an increasingly publicised and televised world. Before her death, Ruth had given herself a spiritual promotion and elevated her status to Lord of the Universe. Her teachings on self-mastery and the channeling of disparate figures such as Nikola Tesla, Plato and John F. Kennedy gained her a decent following and her writings are still regarded as scripture by her closest followers. Elaborately and brightly dressed, her visual image was as grandiose as her mental one and stories of her powers of healing, fainting touch and visionary presence have come to overshadow the Academy of Science's image as an educational institute, an image that in recent years they have sought to regain and shed the association with cult-like following. Since Ruth's death, the organisation had struggled, particularly since 2001, when her space fleet landing had failed to appear. Like realism and Aetherian beliefs. Unarians also believed that our solar system was once inhabited by ancient interplanetary civilizations. The aliens are said to be human beings, who have in fact lived on Earth and on other planets outside our solar systems. They are said to be more advanced than humans, both spiritually and scientifically. Footsteps in which the religion itself attempted to follow, expanding upon 
literally elevating above current gods and building upon current scientific thought into the realms of the currently unknown. Yet Ernest Norman, in fact, briefly mentioned flying saucers in his day, saying that residents of more spiritual worlds were more concerned about atomic testing and responded by making their spacecraft visible and increasing contact with Earth people in order to attract attention to the cause. Unarius calls its content interdimensional science, not religion. Yet the texts they publish read like scripture, and its systems of belief can explain or dispel all phenomena and thus satisfy all questions of meaning for its adherence. The science asserts that everything is energy, atoms, higher knowledge, our bodies and our experiences. This energy vibrates in frequencies and waveforms. Understanding these vibrational energies allows contact with all things, higher intelligence, advanced teaching centers, even our past lives. By being in tune with spiritual frequencies, we can heal ourselves of mental and physical illness. We can achieve mastery over ourselves and our bodies. We can achieve ultimate agency over our destinies. Ernest Norman stressed his spiritual teachings as the key to personal development and mastery over material circumstances. He derided flying saucer chasers as just another manifestation of people pursuing an escape mechanism. They were chasing an easy fix, where a true salvation came from persistent effort, study, and practice. It is clear that Unarian beliefs can, depending on viewpoint, offer very different solutions. To some, the potential for mastery over the self as a being of energy is meaning enough, enough to find personal meaning or lack of meaning in the world, to explain or explain away all of life ills with the flick of a switch. To others, it opened up a pathway of learning and development that would stretch beyond their lifetime, a continuing process they could participate in and find meaning in, shedding the need for external self-actualization. Thus, Unarius generally had two types of students. The followers of Ernest's original text, generally more interested in the academic or the very least scientific process of discovering the bounds of fourth-dimensional physics. Then there are those who believe in the cult of Ruth Norman and the channeling that occurred after Ernest's death. The latter group is often blamed by the former for the ridicule and mockery the organisation had received by the general public since the early 80s, and more so in the internet age, for the conversion of the group to a flying saucer group. With 2001 having come and gone, and no space fleet landing having occurred, Unarius as an organisation doubled down on its roots and principles, the books and works of Ernest Norman while simultaneously demonstrating a belief in a future landing. In Ernest Norman's own words, the scientific knowledge that everything is energy informs some people's anxiety, yet can be powerful. Since everything is energy in some frequency or rate of vibration, then thus too are thoughts and emotions.
we can so liken our own mental mechanism to that of a radio or a TV. Always necessary is the sending and receiving, the two poles or polarities, the positive and the negative. In Spain, the movement made full use of TV and radio to spread word in later years and maintain a charming 90s-looking website to this very day with anachronistic references to Zoom classes in bold HTML. Despite its knowledge of a changing society, of an increasing media presence of various fringe religions and cult-like groups, and a need to control the narrative around their own religion or risk it being used to their disadvantage, the image they maintain to this day is charmingly out of step with the rest of the world. Successfully avoiding comparison with cult figures and ritualistic suicide, yet effectively robbing themselves of any major influence. That was part three of the history of the UFO religion. Stay tuned for part four, where we look at UFO encounters in the internet age.